This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Post Live Election Daily, hosted by national political reporter Robert Costa, is a daily snapshot of the state of the 2020 election. Each day, Costa and other Washington Post reporters will give you the headlines, the inside track on key congressional races, and a behind-the-scenes assessment on the presidential race in top battleground states. And we'll hear from key newsmakers and top political players. In this episode, you'll hear from former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang, American Conservative Union Chairman Matt Schlapp, and Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Bob Costa. Welcome back to Washington Post Live's Election Daily. Here we are, Friday afternoon. It's not only Election Day in America, it's Election Week. We're waiting for the final votes to be counted in several states, Arizona, North Carolina, Georgia, Nevada. And our guest today will bring us inside both campaigns as they wait the final count. It looks like Vice President Biden is moving closer to the White House. We'll welcome Matt Schlapp, a a prominent ally of President Trump, Andrew Yang, who has traveled across Pennsylvania for Vice President Biden, also a former Democratic presidential candidate. And we'll also have as a guest, Atlanta's mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, to talk about her state, which could be, could be, we'll have to see the final tally, a surprise victory for the Democrats. But let's begin with the headlines. Final countdown is where we're at. We are all waiting in a judicious way here at the Washington Post to see where these states end up. But the evidence is clear that the mail-in voting strategy for the Biden campaign, a a strategy that was largely shrugged off by the Trump campaign, has helped Biden at this 11th hour uh, during this election week to climb back into contention in Wisconsin, in Nevada, in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, as suburban voters and urban voters took their cue from the Biden campaign, mailed in those votes, And the president's deeply frustrated, which is why when I call around my Republican sources on Friday morning, we see a president unbound. You saw his remarks on Thursday. If you didn't, this is a president who's alleging widespread voter fraud. There is no evidence of widespread voter fraud at all. But this is a president who I'm told by his confidants wants to protect his brand. So he will likely continue to allege the election is stolen from him, even though that is a lie. The election has not been stolen from him. The votes are being counted. Legal votes mailed in are being counted. But that doesn't mean political warfare is suddenly going to disappear in America. So what's next? Regardless of whether Vice President Biden formally has declared the winner later Friday or not, he would have a lot to deal with as president-elect, as president of the United States in 2021, many currents to navigate. And to help understand this moment, In America, I'd like to bring in Andrew Yang, the businessman who ran for president uh, earlier in 2020. He ran on a platform of math of of helping working Americans have more assistance from the government. He proposed checks from the government to help people uh, survive in this economy. Andrew Yang, welcome back to Washington Post Live. It's great to see you, Bob. It's celebration day. Let's all ring in. Our new president-elect, Joe Biden. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. You did it, Joe. And, you ended the Andrew, Trump era. It is on. Let us all celebrate and gesticulate. <laughs> you can you can gesticulate all you want. Celebration, though, at least at the Washington Post, we're still waiting for the votes to be counted. But Andrew, you clearly reflect the enthusiasm 
of so many Democrats. Uh, but your party's also had some challenges. It's a celebratory moment if Biden wins, but also you didn't gain seats in the House as Democrats and you didn't win the Senate majority, though it's still possible if you scoop up those seats in the Georgia uh, Senate elections uh, later uh, in the next few months. What's your advice to Democrats right now beyond celebrating and gesticulating? Well, I mean, today is a day to acknowledge that we have done something very, very difficult, which is unseat an incumbent president. Uh, now, th this is an, a, a president that, in my mind, should have been very, very soundly defeated. But it's always tough to bet against the incumbent. So the fact that Joe is going to be clearing 270 electoral votes today, I mean, today is a day where we should really reflect on everything that's gone into the, the campaign to unseat Trump, the successful campaign to unseat Trump. That said, everything you just said, Bob, is correct, that uh, there was a very, very deflating dynamic in House races around the country, where if you were to line up House leadership uh, of the Democratic Party and say, how many seats do you think you're going to gain? They would have had a positive number. There is zero, there, none of them would have said, we're going to be minus six. Uh, I talked to a congresswoman who won a very competitive race uh, in what she called a Trump-Romney district, where it, it was a place where um, Romney had won that district. Uh, and she was in danger of losing her seat. She said she lost close friends who were not going to be coming back to Congress. So Democrats do have very much uh, uh, some work to do to try and actually push forward an ambitious agenda that would reflect the needs of the economy and the American people and the public health infrastructure right now. And I said this morning on CNN that if you wanted a break from politics, you are not going to get it for a while, because as you just said, Bob, we have two special Senate races in Georgia, January 5th, that could determine the Senate, because if both of them go to the Democrats and then Kamala is the tie-breaking vote, then that's a Democratic majority very, very, I mean, obviously the slimmest of majorities would be like 50-50 and then you have the tiebreaker. Uh, can mm -hmm. you imagine how much money is going to get spent in Georgia over the next number of weeks uh, for both it's going sides? To be wild. Because for Republicans, it's going to be, yeah, it's, it's going, going to be, to be, it's a, going to be wild. So, and it's all so on the line. No break. It's and I, a majority on the line. Yeah, so I, I actually thought to myself uh, just now, I was like, wow, I guess I'll be heading to Georgia to campaign because it should be all hands on deck. <laughs> like to the extent that anyone could get out Democratic voters in uh, Georgia, like we should go there because it's it's an enormous deal. But it's not what anyone wants, uh, you know. In my opinion, that after this historic election, no one wants to say, "And we're back at uh, at, at the uh, partisan uh, clashing in Georgia." I mean, that, that but that that's uh, that's the reality we we're facing. Um, Georgia is a pretty good place to have uh, all the political reporters and politicos in the country heading to. I'm a fan of REM, so I may try to get a dateline from Athens, Georgia, their hometown. But Andrew, you mentioned the House and the Democrats. They're disappointed. Some of their friends are, are defeated now. Should Speaker Pelosi carry on as, as the leader in the House for the Democrats? Nate, that's something for uh, the House itself to, to decide. Uh, I will say, and I've been public pushing the fact that I believe we should have had a, a stimulus relief bill, a second bill that passed before Election Day. Um, I, I do think that the American people have been devastated uh, economically, socially, 
there are so many small businesses that have closed their doors. And if you're in a small town and the one restaurant in your town has shut its doors, as has been the case in parts of Massachusetts and parts of Iowa, it is very hard to be very optimistic in that situation. People deserved better from us. Uh, even when Congress passed the CARES Act in April, now it's November. Did anyone really think that it would be seven months later and that the pandemic would still be raging and growing and there would not be any further relief from the federal government? Uh, that to me is something that we, we need to try to remedy as quickly as possible. I believe the failure to pass a relief bill contributed to uh, losses in the House personally. Do you believe the Democrats need to think about direct payments to Americans should they hold the White House in 2021? We should have direct payments now, immediately, before, retroactively. And Nancy uh, Pelosi said uh, at one point she would like some of these benefits to be retroactive. But cash relief, it's incredibly popular. 82% of Americans uh, are mm -hmm. for it. It's incredibly popular among economists who saw that the stimulus money in April helped keep millions of Americans out of poverty. It flowed right back into local economies in the form of food, fuel, car repairs, uh, keeping a roof over your head. And as soon as someone's income gets cut off, when they start losing the ability to keep a roof over their head and they start moving to their car and they can't find work, then some terrible things start happening that even if you were just to be um, uh, efficiency minded are very, very expensive. Like we'd actually be saving ourselves right. hundreds of billions of dollars if we just put money into people's hands. And economists agree with this. The American people agree with this. There are dozens of members of Congress who agree with this. We just need to make it happen as soon as possible. Uh, and if we act fast, it's possible that we can preserve the way of life for thousands of communities around the country that are right now falling apart. But Andrew, if you pursue that, if Democrats pursue that, uh, you're going to get the tag from Republicans that it's socialism. While universal basic income, your proposals during your presidential campaign certainly have a constituency, uh, they're popular with many Americans. Republicans have run against these kind of ideas as socialism. And as some Democrats have told me in recent days, that tag sometimes sticks, even if it's inaccurate and unfair. So, how do you get around? the Republican counter that's sure to come if you go in your direction? Some of the primary champions of uh, cash as part of, of the first stimulus bill were Republicans. And Republicans actually do not mind the idea of money in people's hands, particularly because they know it's going to go to support jobs and local businesses uh, uh, and economic growth. So this actually is something that's very bipartisan. A majority of Republican voters are for cash relief. Uh, and uh, many, many members of Congress are from communities where as soon as they go back, people are looking at them being like, hey, uh, you, like our small businesses are closing right and left. We need to do something about it. Uh, so I I'm confident that this is actually very bipartisan. And if you look at the Republican protestations thus far, they've actually been for some reason, and this is misguided in, in, in my opinion, but their protestations have been about the the price of the bill in many cases. And if right. you look at the $2.2 trillion uh, from the CARES Act, a really modest component of it was actually in the form of cash relief. So it's actually a great bang for your buck if you're concerned about absolute cost.
So are you going to stay on the outside, Andrew, or will you be on the inside? Are you in touch with the Biden transition, and are you ready to serve if called upon? How do you know I haven't been on the inside this whole time, Bob? <laughs> uh, I'm just thrilled to be celebrating, like millions of other Americans, that the Trump era is ending, the Biden era is beginning. Uh, so let's give everyone- Andrew, like a, a, you Andrew, know, let's have a direct answer. Are you going to be willing to serve if called upon? Uh, I'm on the record, Bob, saying that if I have a chance to solve problems that I ran on, I would take that chance very gladly and proudly. What do you think the cabinet's going to look like if it is a President Biden? Well, I've, I've been there in the office mapping it out with him. No, I haven't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think they're going to get tre tremendous people, very talented folks want to help rebuild the country uh, with Joe. Uh, and they're going to have their pick, really. Uh, you know, uh, we need everyone. We need all hands on deck. Frankly, like whether it, like if I weren't part of the administration, I'd just be doing everything I can to help because we are in a very deep, dark hole as a country right now. Trump's defeat does not magically solve many of the problems that brought him into office. Those problems are very se severe and longstanding. Um, so there are going to be some great people in Washington trying to dig us out. Uh, I hope to be one of them. Um, but if you're not in Washington, you need to dig too, because there are problems in your community that are getting worse right now. And uh, there are so many people I could use a hand. My organization has been giving economic relief to struggling American families. We've given almost $10 million. Uh, Andrew Yang loves to give money. That's my jam. Um, if I had more, I'd give more. But um, Well, how did, that, how did uh, Humanity uh, Forward, the nonprofit you started, how did they do in the 2020 elections, all the candidates you endorsed? Uh, well, we had a, a few really notable victories, um, but some disappointments, in, in large part because of the dynamic we described earlier, Bob, where uh, there were a lot of candidates in Texas uh, and Nebraska and Iowa that we backed uh, that did not succeed, in large part because there were another 6 million Trump voters that came out, and a lot of the areas that people hoped would be purple stayed quite red. Um, so in addition to, to those six House losses we talked about earlier, there are many incredible candidates that I thought really would, would be the phenomenal members of Congress that did not win, including many of the ones that we supported. Andrew, let's stick with that point you just made. Some of those districts that Democrats hope to turn blue or at least purple, they stayed red. And when I first started covering your presidential campaign, it there was always this evocative image you would discuss of the truck driver in America, who feels like his job is slowly becoming obsolete, among other uh, different trade jobs, the, the, the fear of obsolescence on the horizon. Do you feel like the Democrats need to do a better job of speaking to that voter? And how does Biden do it if he wins? I would take it a step further, Bob. I think that the Democratic Party needs to do a better job of actually improving that person's life in a way that they can feel and experience on any given day. Uh, I think we've gotten way too wrapped up in like, oh, did we message properly to that truck driver? I mean, if that truck driver is concerned about impending obsolescence, they are 100% correct to be concerned about it. Just like the hundreds of thousands of retail workers whose stores have closed and uh, aren't going to reopen. Uh, Google just announced that they have AI that can do the work of call center workers, and there are 2 million call center workers in the United States. The pandemic has accelerated many of the automation trends uh, I ran on. So we have to stop wasting time 
they can see what's happening around them. We can see what's happening around them. We need to actually put resources into their hands so that people can make large scale adjustments uh, and we are running out of time. Andrew, take off your political cap for just a second and put on your your former cap, your current cap really as a tech entrepreneur. I don't have when you see an American cap. economy, well, <laughs> we can just, the cap is a cap. Uh, we, it's maybe not a perfect analogy, but my question is, Andrew, I'm interested in, you look at this economy during a pandemic, all of these Americans, millions, suddenly working from home. What does that tell you about the future of the country and the economy? Bob, the fortunate among us are working from home. But if you look at the industries that have been decimated, uh, you just quickly, let's just play airlines, uh, rental cars, concerts, restaurants, bars, gyms, nail salons, yoga studios, security, like, you know, you look at it, the people that were the most vulnerable were the people that required physical proximity, retail stores and malls, uh, you know, the those folks had to go in and go and stand in a place or work in a place where there were a lot of humans around. Those people are not doing their jobs from Zoom right now. The fortunate among us are doing our jobs from Zoom. So first you have to look at all of those people in those business categories I described who right now have no idea what they're gonna do to make ends meet. And then those of us who are fortunate enough to work from Zoom have to make our own adjustments and it has not been great, it has stunk. Uh, but at least for us, you know, we're not worried about keeping a roof over our heads or, or existential concerns. Uh, the fact is our habits have changed in a way that will make it less possible for that first group I described to go back to work. Because if, if we're not traveling and, and uh, going to sporting events and all this other stuff, then all of the ushers and bartenders and the rest of it will not have a job to go back to. And these habits are not going to revert anytime soon. So I feel for the parents who are struggling with our kids at home, because I am one, but I feel much, much more for that food truck operator who has no business because none of us are going to the office. Andrew, I'm trying to look at your Zoom shot here and see a Skype shot, whatever whatever it is, and see if you have a Yankees hat or a Mets hat in the background because there's a lot of talk in Democratic <laughs> circles. Oh, I can't- You got a math hat. A math hat. Well, that was your campaign. So yeah. that's my question. Are you gonna be Mr. Math working in whatever capacity to help out Vice President Biden should he win? But a lot of Democrats, Andrew, tell me you may run for mayor of New York. Any chance that's going to happen? Right now, uh, again, celebrating this victory, I'm going to do whatever I can do to maximize uh, my contribution to moving our country Well, what forward. are the pros and cons uh, in your mind, Andrew? What are the pros and cons to running for New York mayor? Well, if you look at the issues I ran on, many of them are national in scope. And, and one of the things that I'm very passionate about is that our government is way behind the curve on technology issues, particularly social media, and how it is completely distorting our democracy and our, our data is getting sold and resold and our kids are, are getting rewired. Uh, I mean, that that is a very pressing issue um, in real time. Um, but uh, being mayor of New York City would obviously give you an incredible ability to have a positive impact too. So I'm literally uh, going to be trying to weigh different paths uh, in, the num in the next number of days um, with my team. Uh, until now, I was just pushing for Joe and Kamala to win. 
Uh, and now that they have won, nice job, folks. Uh, now we're gonna start figuring out what my future holds. Um, but I'm just excited to make a contribution and that's gonna be the consideration really. It's like, if I can do the most good, I'll do that. Do you think you could handle the rough and tumble of New York City politics? I think I could handle it personally, you know, I mean, I, I, I have not been mayor of New York City, but I have lived there for a long time. And one thing people have probably figured out about me is like, I'm fairly thick skinned and don't really care that much about what a back page says. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like, um, if, I, if I was the sort of person who was really into that, like I probably never would have made the choices I've made. Uh, you know, I'm going to do what I, I can do to, uh, to help the most people possible. And I think people sense that about me. I think it's one reason why, uh, why folks were excited about my campaign and would potentially support, um, you know, if I were to launch a mayoral campaign. We'll keep an eye on it, Andrew. You can always give us the scoop here at Washington Post Live. We'd welcome it. You don't have to give it to the Times or the New York Post. I'm sure I would owe a New York newspaper or else they would never talk to me again, Bob. You know how it is. <laughs> Fair enough. Andrew Yang, thanks a lot for stopping by this afternoon. And we're now joined by Matt Schlapp, uh, a top ally of President Trump. He is the chairman of the American Conservative Union, the ACU. He's been an advisor to the Trump campaign. He's been on the front lines in recent days during this legal battle the Trump campaign has mounted. Um, Matt, great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, Bob. I will say that I'm going to be a little bit tight for time, but I'm, I'm, it's great to be with you. So if you're tight for time, let's consider this kind of a lightning round interview. Okay. Where is the number one priority for the Trump campaign in terms of its legal focus right now? Well, I, I will talk about what's going on in Nevada. That's where I'm uh, headquartered. And uh, I think I bring experience to this, these types of questions at the country's end because I spent 36 days in the Florida recount. And the first thing I noticed when I got to Clark County is this idea that there are not Republican observers to the ballot contest. That's a real big problem, especially when you have a tight election. And this is one of the tightest ones I can uh, remember. They also don't have, uh, they're not following the law on signature matches. They're essentially just kind of like rubber stamping ballots um, uh, without checking the signatures closely. Uh, and, and the law Matt, in Nevada is- Who, who is they? Who is they? Uh, the, the Clark County, is the largest county in Nevada, the election officials. Where is the evidence of this? The evidence of what, Bob? Of what you just described. Have you seen it have you not yourself? Been reading the, have you not been reading what's going on in Nevada and the lawsuits? Because I can walk through all that if you need that. No, I'm just, I'm just, if you could anecdotally cite just an example of what you've seen, or is, is this something you've heard, or is it something you've so witnessed? Bob, Bob, I think you know that I have integrity and uh, that the reason why I know how they're doing the signature matches is because they've already adjudicated these questions in court. I'd be happy to forward you that information. But basically, Clark County uh, and the state of Nevada, like several other states, uniformly change their election laws within 90 days of the election. And one of the, one of the mistakes that they have made is that they are not following the procedures to make sure you have a signature check. If you're gonna have this many people vote by, vote by mail, Bob, that means they don't show up in many cases, that they mail it. And, uh, and then the, the, uh, the ballot is considered later. They've done in Nevada is they've actually taken that ballot out of the envelope, discarded the envelope, 
So if somebody voted inappropriately, which happens in absolutely every election, there's no way to trace the ballot to the envelope. And if you're not going to check signatures on ballots, it's obviously easier to take ballots that were uniformly mailed, as you all have covered, and they can be returned inappropriately. We had a woman at a press conference uh, yesterday in Las Vegas who uh, went to go vote, and she was told by the election officials that she had already cast her vote. She didn't cast her vote, but somebody who got her ballot in the mail, which once again was uniformly mailed, voted for her. These are the types of problems we found. We found three over 3,000 people voted in this election who don't live in Nevada. So we would like to go through every one of these instances to make sure uh, that only legal ballots are counted. Once again, this is uh, all, this has all been reported on and the, the lawsuit was filed last night to get the information, which you would normally have in a democracy, you would have the ability to go through all this information and you would have the people who were there at the counting tables to make sure if there are any irregular ballots, they could raise objections at that time. Of course, in states like Pennsylvania or certainly in Philadelphia and specifically in Las Vegas, we have not been able to do that. How long could this fight take in Nevada? You know, it's hard to say on these questions. Um, you know, not all the, not all, not even all the legal ballots have been counted yet. And then, of course, uh, we'll have to see how the court cases go. They're hard to handicap, um, but we believe we have very clear evidence of malfeasance in the state of Nevada. Ballots being counted in the in the tally that shouldn't be part of the tally. And we believe, look, that the election should be transparent to both parties, to both presidential campaigns so that uh, the eventual winner will be uh, respected and the results will have integrity, just like, we had, just like we expect with elections that are conducted overseas. It never gets better in terms of accepting results when you do it behind closed doors. You'll remember, Bob, I was part of the Brooks Brothers riot in Florida during the Florida recount. And the reason that occurred is because Dade County officials decided to take those ballots away from the Democrat and Republican observers, and they brought them behind closed doors to count the rest of the ballots. And the media actually agreed that that was, that was a real mistake in terms of the process and the protocols you have for democracy. I'm just not hearing many members of the media say it's inappropriate for Clark County to be doing this essentially behind closed doors as well. What about Republicans, Matt? You've been tweeting this week about your concern with the GOP, your party, in terms of how they're speaking out post-election, what's top of mind? Uh, not much. I suppose I am I'm sometimes a critic of my own party, which I'm, I'm okay with. I always say I'm a conservative first. You remember that, Bob. You used to write for the National Review. I'm a conservative first. I'm a Republican second. And I sometimes criticize my party. And I think on questions of vote fraud, all Republicans talk about it behind closed doors. Very few want to talk about it publicly because they don't want to be a victim of it themselves. So I can understand why people are somewhat skittish to talk about it. But what we've uncovered in Clark County is really alarming. It shouldn't happen. Neither party should rubber stamp it. And members of the media should be trying to root out the, the fraud as well. What do you believe is going to be the Trump campaign's position if Pennsylvania is called later today uh, by Pennsylvania like said, itself? Yeah, like I said, I, I'm not going to get, uh, I'm not going to make decisions for the president. I can talk about what I think as chairman of the American Conservative Union, and I can talk about what I'm seeing on the ground here in Nevada. As chairman of the American Conservative Union, I was very proud of the president. 
for uh, standing up the other day and, t and talking about these irregularities. You, know, you really shouldn't change election law right for an election because what it will do is it'll make one side or the other. And the only places that really change their laws are blue states with very left-wing governors. And they change their laws in a way to make it easier for Democrats to win. And that's why we're in the mess we're in. And then when they took away the transparency so that observers could actually watch the process, it's really a double whammy. And, uh, and so, you know, for me personally, it's gonna be very hard for me to, um, to accept what's happening in these states until we walk through and have a thorough audit of the process and all these questionable ballots. Do you believe mail-in ballots are legal ballots? It doesn't matter how you vote. I'm not so concerned about how you vote, but I do think that um, you ought to only vote if you're registered to vote. And what we're seeing here in Clark County and what we're seeing in several other states is that they actually just uniformly ma mailed a dirty list. And in Clark County, it's kind of have a re it has a reputation for not being a very clean list. So you had a lot of ballots that were mailed to people who weren't eligible to vote. And the question is, did any of those get returned? If we're not allowed to see the process where those ballots are considered with the envelope at the beginning of the process, how will we ever know, Bob? You won't know. Members of the media won't know. And in a close race, uh, that brings the whole result into question. Matt, how much is this a litmus test, this moment for the conservative movement? Are CPAC speaking slots on the line based on how people handle this juncture? CPAC speaking slots are always on the line according to the, the, the people and the voices who have credibility and who lead and who fight. Um, and we always make decisions based on that. All these kind of uh, moments of crisis in our democracy, leaders emerge. Um, and those leaders are rewarded, certainly conservative leaders are rewarded uh, with being highlighted at our events. But, you know, sometimes people speak from other points of view that just think that this is a step too far. And I would think that everyone who's ever been involved in a recount and everyone who understands what's at stake would say, look, President Trump has a really good point when he says, you should have a Republican and a Democrat be able to sit with the officials who are tallying up these ballots, and they ought to be able to watch it, to observe it, uh, to raise objections. That's how we got through the recount without, uh, without even more trauma to our democracy. That is not how they're getting through the count in Clark County, Nevada, and it's not how they're getting to the count in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. And I think that's a big mistake. Who could be against transparency? Certainly not a member of the media like yourself. Matt, let's get specific, if possible. Who has disappointed you on the conservative side uh, in terms of their response? Uh, I'm not really interested in sitting here and attacking uh, Republicans. I'm more pleased with the fact that the president, like he has had to do on so many questions, has stood up and said that this, uh, the, the, change, the wholesale change in voter laws in many of these states uh, and the widespread irresponsible uh, way in which they did the mail-in voting uh, has caused a lot of questions in this election. And uh, we ought to get to the bottom and each and every one of those questions. I mean, Joe Biden should want that as well. Having gone through the recount in 2000, if Joe Biden, he's been strangely quiet about wanting to have transparency, which means that, uh, you know, uh, if, he were to, if he were to get enough votes through what we're going to view as a corrupt process, he starts off with the hangover of that corruption. So I like the fact well, that the well, president hey, wants Matt, to get down. When you, what's your response, Matt, when you use the word corruption just now? 
Yes. Representative Will Hurd of Texas says a sitting president is, quote, undermining our political process. You have Representative Adam Kinzinger, Republican of Illinois, saying to the president, stop spreading debunked misinformation. This is getting insane. What's, what's debunked? That's his quote. He tweeted yeah, it. The, yeah, what's debunked? See, he the thinks the president is spreading misinformation and right, casting doubt Twitter, and upon Twitter a legal election. I'm, Right. And Twitter thinks I'm spreading misinformation. When we find evidence, clear evidence of corrupt ballots, and that's how I use the word, because that's one of the terms of art in all this. When you find evidence of polluted ballots or corrupt ballots, and when I try to put them out on Twitter, I get blocked. So, uh, you know, this is a tough situation. One side is blocked when we try to explain what we're finding, which is why we're going to court. Because once again, just so everybody can understand, through just going through public databases, we have found 3,000, over 3,000 people who voted in Nevada uh, who don't live in Nevada. So I would think everybody, including reporters, would say, hey, that's something we ought to look at. Uh, we've already found one person who's dead. There voted. is no, We're going Matt, there is no of evidence the, of widespread voter fraud in this election. There is evidence of widespread mail-in voting. So, Bob, here's what I don't think you're quite understanding. How can you possibly say that when we weren't allowed into the counting rooms where it all happens? What you're saying is, is that as long as we don't see it and know about it, there's no corruption. I would say that that is not how we handled the 2000 recount. The way you get to this question, if, if you're right and there's not widespread corruption, why won't they let us watch them count? Have you spoken to the president, updated him about what's going on in Nevada? I keep my conversations with the president confidential, and I'm just very proud of the way that he's handling this most stressful situations. Do you think he's calm or furious at the moment? I think he loves his country and he's fighting like a tiger to make sure that the election is handled in a responsible and legal way. And that's how I feel, too. Let's say this doesn't go your way, though, Matt. Should the, the electors be fighting this out in the coming weeks and months? Should this be a, a knockdown fight? Never give in. Let me make this very clear. Every legal ballot should be counted. And if all the legal ballots are counted and it doesn't go my way, of course, I'll be incredibly disappointed. I believe that when, if the legal ballots are counted and all of these uh, illegitimate ballots are not, Donald Trump will win a second term as president. I think it's as easy as that. Unfortunately, in these locations like in Clark County, the way they have correctly done the process, it's hard to unscramble the eggs. It's hard to pull the illegal ballots out of the pile that they're currently tabulating. Matt, you said the president has a path to re-election. Bob, I, yes, I get, let's well, what, if it's can okay, you detail I'm not that. trying to be rude. Can this be the last question? Because I've got to, I've got to get back you to, got my, so to my job in, here on in, the ground. In short then, what is uh, the path to re-election, a realistic path to re-election right now, Friday afternoon? Well, I'm just going to say the same thing to you, which is I believe that we ought to get the final answers in all these states and the legal ballots. All the legal ballots should be tallied and the Republicans and the Trump campaign should have every legal recourse, including the legal steps we're taking in Nevada, where we have found widespread fraud. You can say everything you want, but we have evidence of fraud. And if we get more cooperation with the state and the county, we can route out, we can root out what's solid and what's less solid. But without any transparency or interaction, we have got to go to court to get these answers. And we'll continue to do that so that no illegal ballots are counted. 
in the final result. And that's the way we should run things in America. That's the way every democracy should run things. Matt Schlapp, head of the American Conservative Union and ally of President Trump, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me on, Bob. Sorry I have to run. No worries. And just to be clear, there is no widespread evidence of voter fraud based on the Washington Post's own reporting. We've also seen testimony from FBI Director Chris Wray. Well, uh, we're now going to turn to Keisha Lance Bottoms, who is the mayor of Atlanta, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. She is a surrogate for the Biden-Harris campaign. And with votes still undecided and with two U.S. Senate races in that state headed to a runoff, all eyes remain on Georgia as the nation prepares to select its next president. Mayor Lance Bottoms, thanks for joining Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for having me. What is the latest in Georgia? Uh, it looks like Vice President Biden has pulled ahead a little bit in the latest count, but the race remains uncalled, at least here at the Washington Post. Is it all because of Fulton County, Atlanta, that Vice President Biden has caught up? Well, it's been across the metro area. Vice President Biden performed very well across Georgia, but especially in metropolitan Atlanta. And it's been incredibly fulfilling to see so many people show up to vote, especially this year with losses in our state of Congressman John Lewis, Dr. Joseph Lowry, and Dr. C.T. Vivian. People really took seriously their right to vote and to be able to use their voices. And we saw record turnout across the state, especially in metropolitan, at, uh, the metropolitan area. And the results are paying off. Georgia is blue. And what explains Georgia turning blue? Is it, what's the coalition? Because last time I was in your, your city, Mayor, I noticed it wasn't just about a growing uh, white liberal population or a strong uh, uh, black electorate in Atlanta. You also have Latino Americans in Atlanta. You have uh, Asian Americans moving into Atlanta. How do you see it as mayor? Well, there's been this organic uh, shift in the demographics of our state, for one. Our state is trending younger and our state is more diverse than it was even four years ago. And then on top of that, we have motor voter registration in Georgia, uh, thanks in large part to the ACLU who filed a lawsuit uh, several years ago to make sure that we could register people to vote um, who receive public assistance, et cetera. So we've registered, we've seen a registration uptick of about 800,000 people. When you go to renew your driver's license or get a new driver's license, and many of these people, especially the younger people showed up to vote in this election. So we've known that Georgia has been trending blue. I believe the entirety of this campaign and every conversation I've had with the vice president, um, I've said to him that we could take Georgia this year. And I'm thankful that the campaign believed that because what we saw towards the end of the campaign, we saw Joe Biden in Georgia. We saw Barack Obama. We saw Kamala Harris. That type of energy is not normally given to our state, but to the credit of the Biden campaign, they believe that this was our year and we're watching it happen. Are you a little nervous that these Senate races in Georgia, should they head to a runoff in the coming months, will lack the kind of voter turnout that we saw in the presidential election? Because President Trump will no longer be on the ballot. It won't be about repudiating him if you're a Democratic voter, it'll just be about the Senate races. Yeah, I, I am nervous.
nervous, but I am optimistic. And, and it's about putting in the work and making sure that people recognize how important it is for us to take the Senate. Joe Biden will not be able to do all that he needs to do on behalf of this country if he doesn't have the Senate with him. So I think part of it is educating uh, the electorate and then just reminding them of the difference that we have made in this election and the opportunity that we have to make a difference in January. So it, it's going to be a challenge, but it's not an insurmountable challenge. And the fact that I'm sitting here talking to you about Georgia helps elevate this conversation in our state because people will recognize that all eyes are on us and really uh, where we go as a nation and how we're able to get through the next few years by and large will rest with the people of Georgia showing up to vote. Let's say you had a minute with Reverend Warnock who's running against Senator Loeffler. Uh, what would be your advice to the Reverend about how to win in a runoff? Stay focused and talk directly to the voters. There's going to be a lot of noise. Some of the best advice I received when I ran for mayor and I had a very close election, 832 votes out of almost 100,000 cats. Someone said to me, run like you have blinders on, like a racehorse. Don't look to your left. Don't look to your right. Just keep straight ahead, focused on the finish line. That would be my advice to uh, Reverend Warnock and also to John Ossoff. A few days ago, Senator Todd Young of Indiana, who runs the Senate Republican campaign arm, came to Washington Post Live and he talked about Reverend Warnock and he brought up Reverend Warnock's past comments in support of Reverend Jeremiah Wright years ago in 2008. And it seemed like race could become a, a central issue in the Senate runoff. Uh, what, what do you make of that possibility? The people of Georgia know Reverend Warnock. Ebenezer Baptist Church was the spiritual home of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Reverend Warnock has um, really been a leader on so many other progressive issues in, across our state, um, making sure that people have a second chance when they've been incarcerated, uh, making sure that people have access to resources to help them get housing, uh, job training, et cetera. So the people of Atlanta especially know War Reverend Warnock, and I know that the people of Georgia will get to know him better. And look, it's not going to be a pretty race. It's going to be a very ugly race. And in fact, Reverend Warnock already put out some commercials today that basically, uh, you know, sort of a tongue-in-cheek saying to people, they're going to say, I, I eat pizza with a fork and I, I step on cracks and I don't like puppies. So it, he's preparing folk for that. But again, it's we we saw the ugliness with John Ossoff and, and Purdue. We know that's going to continue. We know that it's coming to Reverend Warnock and the Republicans who are very focused on one another. But again, if we all just keep our blinders on and know that this is about making sure that we can um, have influence in the Senate, then we can and will be successful in January. When you reference the Ossoff-Purdue race, it brought to mind the incident of Senator Purdue mispronouncing the name of Senator Kamala Harris. Uh, what did that moment in the campaign mean for Black Americans living in Atlanta? Because they need to be galvanized if John Ossoff is going to have a shot in a runoff against Purdue. I, th I think that put front and center just the, the disregard for diversity that we're seeing um, from so many people. And 
it was, um, you know, a it, it was not a highlight of this election cycle, that there's so many issues. People are dying. Hospitals are closing, have closed across the state of Georgia. We don't have Medicaid expansion in the way that we need it. There's so many real issues. And to make this about someone's name um, in an offensive way really just, just speaks to where we are with our leaders right now. So. We know that this race is going to be ugly. Uh, we know that race is going to be a part of it. Um, but again, what we've seen in Georgia is that people showed up to vote. They did it quietly. They did it with dignity. And they didn't listen to the noise. And it's made a difference. And I truly believe that this year, Georgia will go blue. And what we know is that when Georgia goes blue, we can expect that the, net, the rest of the South will soon follow. You just heard perhaps from Matt Schlapp, an ally of President Trump, alleging voter fraud in Nevada and elsewhere. Have you seen any evidence of voter fraud in Atlanta? I have not seen any evidence of voter fraud in this city. Uh, what we saw early on were the issues that we had with voting, with the machines working, with the long lines, with people being purged from the voter rolls. But I've not seen anything related to this count, um, anything that would give me concern. We have a Republican who is the Secretary of State. Our governor is a Republican. And so when Donald Trump and, and his mouthpieces speak of fraud, uh, they need to look directly in the mirror at the people whom they supported. Trump supported our Secretary of State. That's his Secretary of State. So if there's fraud in Georgia, he needs to look to his guy to explain it. You were considered, uh, you were on the, the list for Vice President, uh, to be Vice President Biden's running mate. Would you consider a cabinet slot? And are you in touch with the Biden transition team? You know, this has been about winning this election. And I, in the same way that I trusted that uh, Joe Biden would pick the most appropriate person to place on his ticket, I know that he will make selections about his cabinet in the same way what he feels will be best for this country. I've not been extended any offer to join the cabinet. Um, but I, I know that he's going to make the decisions that will best allow him to lead us. And I'm, I'm looking forward to his presidency and really just an opportunity for this to feel like a democracy again, um, because it, it, it has been such a dark cloud over our country for the past four years with Donald Trump as president. I just look forward to the transition beginning. Has the transition team reached out to you in any way? Now, I don't know that the transition team has formally reached out to anybody. Um, I, what I know is that everybody has been focused on this election. So I, I don't think the formalities of the transition have begun. What do you make of your parties showing in Georgia uh, and across the country on Tuesday? Does it need to do better with certain voters? Did it misjudge the electorate in, in any way? We can always do better, but we've had a record turnout in this state. I haven't seen the final numbers, but I would venture to say it's going to be in the, the mid to high 70s of, um, 
So that's a that's a a good turnout for Georgia, but we always want a great turnout, especially when it gets time for uh, for when it's time for us to show up for the runoff. There's always room for improvement. I would love for us to hit a hundred percent in turnout. So that's always the goal for us to get those numbers as high as possible. But a record number of people showed up across the state, and I'm very happy about that. What's the significance if the election is is uh, called for Vice President Biden? What's the significance of having Senator Harris as the potential vice president elect? It's a historical moment in our country. And it's one that so many people have worked so many years uh, to see this date. So I think it's something we should all be proud of. In every conversation that I've had with Vice President Biden, he said that he wanted his cabinet, his administration, his ticket to reflect who we are as a country, the diversity of our country. And in picking Senator Kamala Harris to join his ticket, he's he's already done that. And it is just, it's a shining moment for all of us. And final question here, Mayor. When you look at the South, you have your finger on the pulse as much as anyone. Do you think the Democrats gained their success in the South this time around was an aberration because President Trump was there? Or do you believe they can actually build on this in 2022 and 2024? Oh, it's it's only going to get better for Democrats in the South, especially in Georgia. We've, we've seen a voter registration of almost 800,000 people over the past few years, um, in large part due to our motor voter registration that we have in this state. So when people show up, to renew their license or get a new uh, get a license, they have an opportunity to register to vote. That's significant. You add on top of that just the the people on the ground who are elevating the conversation about voter registration and voter turnout. And I also think it's helpful that people now see we did it in Georgia. And when you look at Mississippi. The, those same numbers are there in Mississippi. We aren't the only state um, that really has had a shift in the way that we've seen in Georgia. It's possible in other states, but you know, when Vice President Biden came to town um, over a week ago, I had on a shirt that said Atlanta influences everything. And, and it was sort of my, my speaking into existence, what role we would play. Well, I think it's going to be the same way. Georgia influences a lot, especially in the South. And I think you're going to see other states really looking um, at ways to up their voter registration. Mayor Lance Bottoms, appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you very much. And we're going to be paying close attention to those Senate races. I may even get down to Atlanta and we could uh, maybe get together for a distance interview in person. Get back That's to old school great. reporting. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.